Hi, this is Nathan. My passion is to provide Christ-centered Bible teaching and resources that glorifies God and will encourage and equip you to grow spiritually and live a Christ-centered life. If you would like more resources to help you understand the Word of God and cultivate a passionate love for Jesus that turns the world upside down, please visit deeperchristian.com. Now, grab your Bible as we dive into this message from God's Word. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Been really excited. Been walking through, and of course, you know Luke 15. It's the whole prodigal son story. And I've been walking through it just afresh over these last uh, several weeks. And uh, just been really blessed and encouraged and challenged in my own soul. And I wanted to invite you into that uh, this morning. Uh, It's interesting as you get into Luke chapter 15, Jesus is telling three specific stories dealing with one particular issue. And the whole context, uh, and again, there's a lot of things that for some reason I've always missed. (laughs) And I think it's because, you know, we love the prodigal son story. And we know there's two other stories connected. And so we kind of tie them together. But we forget the overarching context which we need to understand if we're going to truly comprehend what Jesus is doing in the passage. And if you look at verse 1 and 2, Jesus is setting up the context of why he's giving these three stories, these three parables. And he says this, this is Luke 15, verse 1 through uh, 3. It says, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near Jesus to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying. So you've got to understand that even before you get into the three stories, you've got to understand the context. And the context is the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, this whole group that are antagonistic against Jesus, they're coming before Jesus and they're complaining and grumbling and arguing, Jesus, why are you hanging out with the sinners and the IRS agents? Which I would ask the same questions <laughs> I mean, Jesus, if you're going to hang out with people, should you not hang out with the people who have it all put together? Because the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes of this day, these were the religious leaders. Uh, These were the ones who took their faith seriously. These are the ones who wear the long robes, they do all their traditions, they they have the right lifestyle, and yes, it's a little, little legalistic. However, they have it down. So obviously, Jesus, if you are the Messiah, if you're the one who is proclaiming that you are God in the flesh... Surely, wouldn't you want to come out and hang with the church folk? And that should make sense, shouldn't it? In other words, if Jesus, is, if Jesus was physically here, wouldn't you expect him to show up this morning here? Why? Because he loves us. <laughs> come on. Seriously. We are the religious crowd. So in the middle of this context, isn't it interesting that Jesus tells three stories? And the reason he tells the three stories is to give you a picture into the very heart of God and the fact that God's heart and his nature is after the sinners and the IRS agents. Because they do need Jesus. (laughs) So I want to walk through the three stories, well, the first two rather quickly. I want to look specifically at the prodigal son story. And it's just, it's been a powerful illustration in my mind. Uh, In chapter 15, verse 3, down to verse 7, Jesus tells the first parable, the first story, which is the shepherd and the lost sheep. And uh, for just the sake of time, I'll just summarize it really quick. But here's a shepherd. He has 100 sheep. One of them goes missing. 
And if you are a shepherd and you have one sheep go missing, what does a good shepherd do? Well, Jesus says, oh, I'll tell you what I do. A good shepherd, shepherd is going to go and find that lost sheep. Well, that makes sense. Uh, I used to do youth ministry, and my philosophy of youth ministry is anytime we took a trip, as long as we came back with 90% of the kids, that's a good statistic. Because, <laughs> you know, there's always one or two parents who are like, if you lose our kid, it's really okay. You know, it's, don't search too hard. And so, I mean, I, I'm thinking, as a shepherd, if you have 100 sheep and you lose one, that is only 1%. It's not that big of a deal. And yet Jesus says, do you know what God's heart is like? God's heart would go after the one. Now you realize that if you are going to go after the one sheep, you do not leave the 99 by themselves. Because if you have 99 sheep by themselves, you won't have any sheep. So the presumption in the passage is he probably got someone to watch the 99 so he can go look for the one. The other presumption in the passage is that it, is, it would be really rare in Jesus' culture for someone to have a hunter sheep. So it's probably the community sheep. In other words, these are not my 100 sheep. I am the shepherd looking over the 100 sheep for the entire community. Which means if one of them goes away, this becomes really significant because this is our sheep. So what does the shepherd do? With the overwhelming burden, the shepherd says, I am going to risk my life to go after that one sheep. Now, where you raise sheep in Israel is right on the backside of the wilderness. It's right near the desert. And so if a sheep begins to wander off, the sheep is going off into the wilderness, which is a land of great desolation. It is a land of no water, no food. This is where the wild animals live, so the, the lions and the bears are out there. The robbers are all out in the wilderness, and there's these big, deep crevices in the ground. So as a shepherd, if you're going to go after a lost sheep, you are literally putting your life at risk because you're going to now have to face potential wild beasts and robbers and you have the potential of falling into these crevices. And isn't it interesting that when the shepherd finds a lost sheep, there is great rejoicing. And it says in verse 5 that when he finds it, he lays it upon his shoulders. And I'm not a shepherd, but I've been told that with a sheep, if you put a sheep around your shoulders and you hold the, the, the little feet the two feet here and the two feet here. If you hold the little feet, feet scissors, then it actually calms the sheep down. It actually brings peace to that sheep. Isn't it neat that the shepherd doesn't beat the sheep, doesn't chastise the sheep, doesn't even make the sheep walk home? Rather, the shepherd brings it to a place of peace and rest and then carries it. And when he gets back to the community, the whole community celebrates the fact that the lost sheep has been found. And then the punchline of the story, Jesus says in verse 7, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Now again, think of this in the context. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders. And he says, look, if you have it all put together, there's no rejoicing over you. The rejoicing happens when the people of whom I'm hanging out with, those sinners and those IRS agents, when they come to repentance, heaven rejoices. That's the heart of our Father. Isn't that phenomenal? And Jesus says, well, obviously you didn't get that, so let me tell you another story. And he comes and tells a story of the lost coin. So think about how this thing, how these stories begin to narrow. You have a shepherd with 100 sheep. 
Now we have a woman with 10 coins, and she loses one. So here's a shepherd who loses 1%, and he's willing to risk life and limb to go find that sheep. Now here's a woman who loses one coin. That's 10%. And what does she do? Well, it says that she lights a lamp, and she searches her house to find the lost coin. Uh, scholars tell us that in this culture, uh, that it would be really rare for a woman, especially just to be carrying a pile of coins. It's not a liquid society. You typically trade. So they don't just work with cash. And so the only reason why a woman would carry a large bag of money, especially with 10 coins, is because it's like the emergency fund or she's out on a, she's going to be out traveling on, on a, some distance. This is, this is livelihood. This is desperation. This is a security kind of a thing. So if you lose 10% of that, that's not, well, it's just a coin. You know, I mean, if I drop a penny, I don't worry about it. But if I dropped a $100 bill, I would search. Actually, if I dropped a quarter, I'd still search. You know? <laughs> but this is, this is incredibly valuable. This, this coin is not just a few pennies. This is a lot of money. And it says that she lights a lamp and she searches her house. Now, if you understand how houses, houses are built in Israel, it's really intriguing most of the houses over there are built out of stone. And the reason being is wood was very rare, and there are rocks everywhere. And so if you're going to build something, you'd build it out of rock. Now, if you're going to build a house out of rock, uh, there's not a lot of light coming in. There's not a lot of pores for it to seep in. In fact, the only window typically in a house is a little tiny, you know, maybe like 8-inch by 3-inch block at, toward the top just to let a little bit of ventilation in. And so there's not, much, there's not much light. And again, you don't put windows in a house because that invites people to look into your house. <laughs> and there's no glass. Glass is very expensive. So we don't, we don't put windows. And so if you drop a coin, you're, you're dropping a coin in the midst of darkness. So what does a woman do? She lights a lamp. Now, you can't imagine, you know, like those old camping lights. That's not a lamp. In fact, the lamp... It sits in like the palm of your hand. It's this little tiny oil lamp. It's just enough. I mean, just it gives out a little bit of light. But what does a woman do? She lights this little tiny lamp, and she's searching around the floor of her, of her house trying to find this coin. By the way, archaeologists today, when they're looking at houses in Israel, have found countless coins in the floorboards or in the, in the stones. And the reason being is apparently if you lost a coin, <laughs> it's hard to find. And so they're finding coins all the time. So this is very applicable to the times in which Jesus is living. And he says, here's this woman who loses a coin that is so significant in her life. And what does she do? She labors and she just is overburdened trying to find this coin. And when she finds the coin, isn't this hilarious? When she finds the coin, verse 9, she calls her friends and neighbors and says, Woo, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I have lost. So she finds her money and then she spends money to celebrate the fact that she found her money. Because there's a celebration. And anytime you have a Jewish celebration, there's going to be money involved. Because, hey, you've you got you to buy the party hats and the balloons and the cake and the ice cream and all that other stuff. Okay, well, that's what I would do. But, but there's an expenditure to celebrate. And I just, I just find that ironic. But then look at, look at the punchline, verse 10. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And again, think about this in, in the context. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are asking and grumbling, why do you spend so much time with sinners and tax collectors? 
And Jesus says, oh, but do you know, do you know the heart of my father? Do you, do you know what God's heart is all about? His heart is about those, those lost. And he's willing, even when it's only one person, if you had 100 sheep and he goes lost, he's willing to risk life and limb to go search for that one sheep. He's like this woman who loses a coin and, and out of great desperation, he's willing to search, labor, tirelessly trying to find that lost coin. And when he finds it, oh, there's great rejoicing. And then he narrows the whole story even more and he tells the popular story of the prodigal son. And it's all about a father with two sons. And I would actually like to read Luke chapter 15, starting verse 11. Uh, listen to what Jesus says. It says in verse 11 that Jesus said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed the swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it upon him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring out the fatted calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they began to celebrate. Stop right there. We'll finish the story in a second. Jesus is telling the story about a father who has two sons. And the younger son comes up to the dad and says, Dad, I wish you were dead. Spits in his face, demands his inheritance. And I I know it doesn't say he spit in his face, all that stuff. But that, that's culturally the same thing. As a, as a young man, you do not walk up to your parents and say, I want my inheritance. Because that would be the same thing as saying, Dad, you have no value in my life. I want no relationship with you. I wish you were dead. I want what I have coming to me. So I don't want to wait till your death. I want it now. Now, you've got to recognize that this was not written in America uh, this was written in the Middle East, which is an honor-shame culture. It's a, it's a father, it's a patriarch kind of society. And in an honor-shame culture, you do not do this. I mean, we wouldn't do that here, let alone there. This is so shameful. This is, this is the father, by legal right, had the opportunity to kill his son at this moment. Because you do not dishonor your parents. So here's his son, imagine this. Walks up to his dad and says, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance. And what does the father do? The father says, okay. And gives him the inheritance. Now, again, you've got to think about this culturally. They do not have a cash-based society. It's all based on trade and barter, which means if you don't have a cash society, in order to get cash for your inheritance, 
that means suddenly you've got to take property, you've got to take animals, you've got to take things you own, and now sell them at a discount so you can have the quick sell. Does that make any sense? Uh, in this culture, if you're going to sell property, uh, oftentimes it would take months for it to go through. Probably sounds very similar to our, our day, doesn't it? <laughs> but there was this whole legal process. And you wanted to see the land, or you wanted to see the animal, you wanted to make sure it wasn't sick, so you wanted to give it a few weeks, and, and you went through this process to really know what you're buying. So if the son is urgent for his inheritance, and the father had to hurry and quick sell everything, he's, he's having to sell it at a huge discount. So here's his son who has an inheritance, and yet his inheritance is actually, it's not going to be even that big. But he would rather have it now, and disassociate himself relationally from the father, then actually wait it out and spend time with the Father. Uh, you understand that uh, in, in the, this culture, the firstborn, anybody a firstborn? Oh, praise the Lord for firstborns. A firstborn got the bulk of the inheritance. Praise the Lord. <laughs> and the reason the firstborn got the bulk of the inheritance is because when dad died, the oldest son typically had to have the resource to care for the entire family. Again, this is, this is not an American thought process or society. Uh, there, if, if a child was going to get married, right, he would build onto his father's house. And so the, the father would have this room. Uh, then they would have a big courtyard where they do the cooking and the hanging out. And so here's a son. He wants to get married. And so what does the son do? He, he actually uses one of the walls of the father's house. So it takes less time to build, less money. And he just builds three more walls around it to create another room for him and his wife. And so as the family grows, you, you know, you get all the aunts and the uncles and the, you know, the, the grandparents and all this kind of stuff, and you have, this, you have this compound of the family. And so the patriarch, the father, is caring for this whole thing, which is why then when the father would die, he would typically leave at least 50% of the inheritance to the oldest son because he had to care for the family. And then the rest of the inheritance would be split between all the other sons. And what I've been told is if there's only two sons, Typically, the older son would probably get two-thirds. The younger son would probably only get about a third. Again, it's, it's taking care of the family thing, the legacy of, of the father. So here's the younger son. He realizes he's not going to get a lot anyway. Comes to the father and says, Father, I wish you were dead. Give, my, give me my inheritance. The father has to short sell, gets less for everything, and then gives the money to the son. And now it says that this younger son takes the money, turns his back on the father, goes off to some distant country, and lives loose living, whatever that might mean. And again, there's a lot of speculation. The older son, which we find out later, presumes he was spending it in wild living. And again, a lot of scholars tell us that it's probably because that's what the older son would have done. And what the actual younger son did, we don't know. But according to Jesus, it was, uh, my translation says, it was loose living. <laughs> so he was just going crazy. You know, drinking and driving and, you know, going on roller skates and whatever else loose living might include. I figure there's a lot of kids here. We don't have to go into details. So. And at some point, he runs out of money, which makes sense. You can't live crazy forever. Uh, the distant country thing is really intriguing to me, too. Uh, I always presume, I guess when I was a kid, you know, if I was going to go to a distant country, I would go to, like, Portugal. You know, or New Zealand. That's a foreign country. Like, the distant land. But in Jesus' day... He's on the Sea of Galilee. And if I can just even use my Bible, if this is the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is teaching this on the northern shore near Capernaum, right up the very tippity top here. 
and he's telling this story. And what's interesting is, if you just go to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, that's actually Roman territory. That's part of the Decapolis. This is considered a foreign country. So for the son to go off to some distant land to squander his livelihood doesn't mean he has to go, you know, 500 miles somewhere. It actually just means he just needs to go to the other side of the lake. Now, where he goes, we do not know. But my point is, he doesn't have to even go that far. But while he's in some distant country, he runs out of money, and suddenly there was a severe famine. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. That's not good. And this famine was so severe that here is this Jewish boy who hires himself off to a pig farmer. Now, again, if you understand culture, pigs are at the very bottom of Jewish stuff. You do not hang out with pigs. You do not talk pigs. You do not even look or smell bacon. You just you do not touch pigs. Praise the Lord for the redemption of the cross. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> praise the Lord. So here's this Jewish kid who is in such desperate need. He was willing to debase himself at the very lowest level in Jewish culture and work with the pigs. In fact, he looks at what the pigs are eating and said, oh, they're even getting something better than what I'm getting. Which is, that's, pigs will eat anything. So to want what the pig is eating, that is desperation. <laughs> now we're actually told that the pigs didn't even get much to eat. Because it says that he wanted to fill, verse 16, he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. Uh, the pods there is the carob tree. And it drops these little, it looks like a big, uh, like a green bean kind of a thing. It's this really hard, and if you break it open, there are these little I don't know what you would call it. They're, it's not a nut. It's not a seed. It's just this, it's, it's a carob plant. Uh, and a lot of times, if you, if you just suck on them, it kind of has a chocolatey flavor. It's not chocolate. It's definitely not chocolate. Uh, and human, pigs can barely digest this. Humans can basically not digest it, but at least can give you some sustenance. Barely. And he's looking at these carob plant things that the, that the pigs are eating, so the pigs aren't even getting slop. They're eating carob plants, which is like the last thing you would give an animal. And he's like, oh, if I could just even eat the carob plants. I mean, that would at least be something. So he's in absolute desperation. Isn't it interesting that we look at a famine and we go, oh, no, look at his desperation. And yet, when I've talked to Jews that have become believers, they look at the story and they say, do you, do you realize that the famine is actually the providence of God in this kid's life? that it, he needed a famine to awaken him to his desperate need. Why was he willing to return to the Father? Well, famine. And if the famine wasn't there, he would have just been content in just hiring himself off and just eating muck that he may have never returned. And I, I mention that because I, I don't want us to forget the fact that in our own lives and the people that we know, Sometimes God uses crazy situations and circumstances as the means to draw them unto the Father. And sometimes I think we as believers, we want to step in and kind of get people out of their famines, their, their desperation as quick as possible because, well, we don't want to go through that either. And yet sometimes it is the desperation that brings someone to the end of their rope where they say, I, I need God in my life. Just a thought. So while he's with the pigs, he makes this statement. I, I love verse 17. It says, when he came to his senses, <laughs> because up to this point, he hasn't been. 
he comes, he, gather, he gathers some insight, and he says this. He reasons with himself. He says, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? He's not talking about the father's servant. He's not talking about the father's slaves. And undoubtedly, the father had, had those. The word here in the Greek for hired, hired men or hired servants is actually the term of like the guys who stand on the edge of the road waiting for a hire every single day. Uh, this, this would be the same group of people when Jesus told the story about the, uh, uh, here's this group of people, and the, the owner comes out and says, hey, do you need a job? Hey, I'll, I'll give you a denarius for the, for the day's wage and go work in my field. And later on, he goes and sees some more guys. Hey, come work in my field. Later on, hey, and then right before closing, hey, why don't you work in my field? And then you all get the same amount. Remember that story? And, of course, they, the ones who were there all day long in the heat of the day were complaining that they got the same amount as the other ones. But that, that's this idea. It's those kind of workers. There's, there's no guarantee of a job. Uh, this is, there's no, there's no uh, stability. There's no security. You are, you're not an actual servant of a, of, a, of, a, of a wealthy landowner. Rather, you're the guy on the edge of the, uh, at the, at the, edge of the street every single morning saying, hey, could, could you hire me? I'll work on the fields. Hey, could, could you hire me today? So there's no security. There's no stability. But the son says, even those guys have it better than what I have. And so he reasons with himself, oh, if I could just return, I will go to my father, verse 18, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Could I just be one of those guys on the side of the road that just, you can hire me once in a while, and that would actually do better for me than what I'm in right now. So don't even make me a servant. Don't, don't make me one of your slaves, because they had guaranteed food and housing and clothing, that kind of stuff. He says, I don't even need that. Can, can I just be the guy on the edge of the road? And so he says, uh, Jesus says, verse 20, that he got up and came to the Father. But while he was a long way off, and of course, every sermon on the prodigal son focuses on this idea that here is a father who's just been fogging up the windows. They didn't have windows. But if they did, he'd been fogging up the windows, looking out the window, just, just waiting for his son to return. And the moment that the sun was on the horizon, the father, think about this, it's an honor and shame culture. The father has already been shamed by the son. The son has already walked up to the father, spat in his face, and said, I want you dead. And now the father, when he sees the son, is willing to shame himself again. Because it says that when he saw, saw him a long way off, he felt compassion and ran. Now, in this culture, the older you are and the more distinguished you are, the slower you walk. It's a great idea. <laughs> and so if you were a dignitary, if, if you were an older man, you walked. Which is why Brent. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I know, I was going to say, there's some kettlebells, we do go that slow. <laughs> The only people who ran were servants and children. And part of that reasoning is, is you know, in, in that day, they didn't have pants, right? They wore those long garb, robe, awkward things, right? And so your, your leg span is really not that far. And so the only way you could run is you had to grab your clothing, yank it up over your knees, tie it up or hold it, and then you had legs free to run. So there's two problems in the passage with this guy. One, he's running, which is a shameful thing for a, a, an older man to do. Two, he's burying his legs, which would have been incredibly white. 
because they would have never seen the sun. Because in this culture, you, you do not bear your legs. So think about this. The father, who's already been full of shame, he's already been shamed by the son, is willing to shame himself, grab his cloak, bring it over his knees, and then run to his son. In fact, this is so awkward that when you look at Arabic translations of, this, of the New Testament, they often use euphemisms for the word run because they don't know what to do with this because men do not run. So they say he hurried, he quickened because they don't, they want to, they, they don't want to put run because it's actually offensive in that culture, even to this day. Isn't that interesting? But he runs and when he gets to the sun, it says he embraces him and he kisses him, which is maybe more awkward in our culture. But again, this is a cultural thing. Uh, several years ago, I was, I was leading some trips in, in Israel, and we were in Jericho. And one of the things we do in Jericho is uh, we have coffee and coffee, which is like this delightful dessert of cheese and caramel. I mean, it's just, uh, not caramel, it's uh, syrupy. It's just, it's amazing. It's like heaven on a platter. Uh, and, and then we have coffee. And so we were, we were at the Jericho Hotel, and, and we were looking at Jericho stuff, and we came down, and, and we had our coffee and our cafe, this little cheesy thing, and we were eating that, and I was going to go in and tell the, the owner of this Jericho establishment, thank you for, for doing this, and I forgot the culture. But I, I walk in, and I says, hey, I just want to say thank you, so, and he goes, ah, ah, and of course, I'm American, and I like my personal space. And I, I don't usually kiss men. Uh, I don't usually kiss, period. So, and so here I am, and I, I wish, I, looking back, I wish I had a camera on my face because I, I have no doubt it was bugged out eyes, and, and here's this man with his big Middle Eastern beard just going, mwah, mwah, mwah. And I'm like, ha, ah, ah, ha, ah, thank you. And decided we're never going back to Jericho. But... But that's, that's not even quite this idea. The idea here in the passage is that when the father got to the son, the father actually throws himself upon the neck of the son and starts to kiss him. And the word is not like a cultural kind of a thing. This is like a kind of a thing, which is maybe even more awkward. And I'm glad they don't do that, uh, typically. But do you realize that the heart and the love of the father was so overwhelmed by the son that the father, in this overwhelming embrace, grabs his son and just starts kissing him? And remember, this is God's heart for the sinner. Now, when you look at this whole scene, the father is establishing relationship with the son. See, what, what the father should have done is he would have, would have seen the son, and culturally, what he should have said is, all right, I'm going to have him wait outside the courtyard for about two or three days just so that the community knows that I know he's there and that he shamed me. And then I might give him audience, and then I might, you know, we'll figure out something. But rather, isn't it interesting that he runs and in his full embrace starts kissing him as if he is his son? That there is no shame in fact, it's interesting to me that the son has, starts his uh, statement in verse 21. And again, he, he rehearsed this back in verse uh, 18 and 19 and probably said this 100 times on the way back home. 
you know, Dad, I'm so sorry. I, I'm, you know, I'm not worthy to be your son. I, can I just be your hired hand? And Dad, I'm not worthy. And, I, and he's probably been rehearsing this over and over and over again. And he, here he is. He gets, he gets to the moment. I mean, this is the climactic moment in his life. And the, the father is not responding how he would have thought the father would have responded. Because he figured he was going to have to beg. He was going to have to plead. And here's the father embracing him and kind of stuff. And the, and the son begins his speech. In verse 21, he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And then the father stops him. He didn't even get through the rest of the statement. Because the rest of the statement in verse 19 was, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. But the father is not even willing to listen to it. The father stops him mid-discourse, and he says to his slaves, Quick, bring out the robe and the sandals and the ring. Now, again, you got to see this in light of the culture. Uh, the robe here is not just a garment. Uh, the robe here is a, in, in, the, in the way it's written in the Greek, it's a one-of-a-kind garment that would be only used for incredible uh, special occasions. Uh, in our culture, the closest thing we'd have is a tuxedo. But it would be like a handmade tuxedo. In fact, some, some scholars have pointed out that in the culture, that if you had one of these and a, and a, and a VIP showed up, you would debate whether or not you even want to wear this one. You could just wear, wear a generic one. This would be reserved for, like, weddings. This would be reserved for incredible, like, I'm going to meet the king kind of moments. This, this is a one of a, uh, Joseph. If you remember Joseph in the Technicolor dream coat, remember that? If you heard that one. But when Jacob made this multicolored coat, this robe for his son, it was a one-of-a-kind robe that was, it distinguished Joseph as the son. And later on, when that robe was brought back to Jacob, and it was smeared with blood, Jacob goes, that was my son's. So it's identifiable. That's what this robe is. And so the father says, hey, grab the, grab the robe. Go, go, go get it. And comes and puts it upon the son. Now, isn't it interesting? The father did not ask the son to go take a bath. He smells like pigs. He's been hanging out in slop. He is dirty. He is mucky. He has a smell of a pig upon him, which is repulsive in a Jewish culture. And yet, rather than having him clean up so that he could be clothed properly, the father just clothes him with the best robe. Sandals in, in this culture was only reserved for sons and, and, and like, sorry, fathers and sons. Even servants typically went barefoot. So the fact that the father went and got sandals and put them upon the feet of the son was, again, a sign of restoration, that this is my son. The ring isn't just some random ring. This is the signet ring of the family crest. This, this is the ring that, of course, if you know those, like, you know, the wax seal kind of the idea, it's that. So that the, if there's business deals, there'd be this piece of clay. We, we'd press the seal into the clay and have the official family stamp in there. In other words, the father is giving the authority of the family to the son. So imagine, imagine this scene. All that's taking place, the, the, the son is being restored. There, there's not like a, well, if you, if you want to earn my trust again, maybe I'll trust you eventually. There's none of that in the passage. Here is a son who is shaking his fist in the face of the father and says, I demand my own rights and demand my own way and, and ran off and lived in loose living. And yet while he was a long way off, the father in overwhelming compassion sees the son and, and shames himself to run, embrace, kiss, clothe, sandal, put signet ring on his hand. 
and brings about a restoration, a healing, a life that says, you are my boy. And Jesus says, oh, that's how God feels about you. When you and your sin and your depravity, right, Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, while we were shaking our fists in God's face, Christ died for us. He did not wait for us to clean ourselves up. He did not wait for us to, to figure things out. What did he do? He took the initiative. He ran, embraced, and kissed, and clothed. In fact, the father says, hey, grab the fat calf and kill it. We're going to have a party. And a fat and calf, uh, I, I've been studying that out. It's really interesting to me. What I've learned is that most families don't just randomly have a fat and calf. If you have a calf, especially in time of famine, you're not going to fatten it up. You just want to keep it surviving. The only reason you would have a fattened calf is that you had a dignitary coming and you knew that at such and such a date there's going to be a big celebration. And so you wanted the best kind of veal and so you knew, okay, about six months from now uh, he's coming so I need to make sure that I get a cow birthed in time so I have enough time to fatten it up so that when the celebration happens we can kill it. So there's been a lot of planning in this process which tells you this calf was not for this kid. According to Jesus, there was this big party on the horizon. Some big dignitary was probably going to be coming into town, and the father was going to honor the dignitary with the fattened calf. But the father's love and compassion for his son was so great. He said, ah, oh, there's no better use of that calf than for my son. And so we'll figure out something else for the dignitary. We'll have chicken or something. And hey, we'll... We are going to celebrate with the fattened calf. And it says that they killed the calf. And, of course, the, uh, the statement is, This son of mine, verse 24, was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of a good Jewish celebration. For some reason, I, I don't think, I think very somber. I, and I don't know why. But in my mindset, and maybe it was the whole Jesus of Nazareth film back in, like, what was it, the 70s. It's so just, ugh. Oh, verily. That kind of stuff. It just seems very drag, drab. But you realize that a, Jew, a Jewish celebration is a party. Uh, some of the most exuberant celebrations I've ever seen is in Israel. That when there's a big party, everyone dances. Everyone dances. And if you don't know how to dance, all you got to do is learn that, you know, Jewish turn the light bulb thing. Anyway. Now you know some Jewish dancing. Uh, but there's dancing and there's, there's feasting and there's big celebrations and laughing and just there's, there's exuberance. That's what's going on with the sun. And do you, could you imagine what this must have been like for the sun? That here you are, you have spent everything, you've wasted everything, you've rebelled, you've shaken your fist in the father's face. And yet what did the father do? He brought restoration, he brought healing, he made you his own son. And now here you are at the party and you look over at your dad and what is your dad doing? He's, he's celebrating. He's dancing over you. Do you realize that's what God does for us? In, in fact, uh, in Nehemiah 8.10 it says that the joy of the Lord is your strength. Uh, Psalm 1611 says that in him, in Jesus, is the fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you realize that God's rejoicing over you should cause you to have strength? 
And there's no doubt in my mind that here is this younger son who is just overwhelmed by the love and overwhelmed by the graciousness, and overwhelmed by the mercy and the compassion. And yet as he watches his dad dance and celebrate and rejoice at the fact that he's returned home, there's just there's strength of the soul that happens in the younger man. I love that story. And I say all of that because I, I want to tell you two twist endings that Jesus gives to the story. Interestingly, supposedly, what I, what I could find is that the story, what we just walked through, was a typical story that Jewish fathers would use to teach honor and shame to their children. But Jesus changed the ending. Uh, in the original story, the way that the, the Jewish fathers would teach the story is, here's a father who had two sons. The younger, said, son, younger son said, Dad, I want my inheritance. Wish you were dead. And out of the overwhelming shame, the father was willing to give him the cash, goes off, spends it in loose living, comes back. And here's, the, here's, the, here's how the original ending went. As the son was returning back to the community, the community saw the son on the horizon and says, that is the kid who just brought shame to the father. And so as the community, we are going to stand up for the right of the father and bring about justice. So the community stands up, goes over to the son and kills him which was legally okay, because he dishonored the father. And Jewish fathers would, would tell the story as a way to say, that's not how you treat me. Which does make sense. <laughs> we should not treat our parents that way. But think about this. Jesus tells a story that they knew quite well, but changes the ending. Why? Why? Because he's talking about the heart of the Father. He's talking about the heart of God. And Jesus, do you realize that, that when the sun was, on, was just a speck in the horizon and the Father saw the sun, what did the Father do? Ran out to the sun. Why would the Father run out to the sun? And the presumption is because everyone in the story knows the story, or everyone in, the, in that culture would have known the original story. Which is what? The community would have raised up and went out to kill the son. So what does the father do? The father is willing to shame himself, grab his cloak, bring it up above his knees, and run to the son and embrace him before the community gets there to kill him. And Jesus, do you realize that the heart of our God is so good that when justice demands your death, because the wages of sin is death, what did God do? He ran out in front of the community and he embraced you to save your life. Isn't that beautiful? And I know we call the story the prodigal son, but that's actually, that's actually a bad term. And again, that word prodigal, it just means lavishness. It means uh, an expenditure of, a great, of greatness. And it comes, uh, and I think it's the New King James that translates it, but it, it says that when he went out, it took... The younger son took his inheritance and went out to the distant land. He spent it in prodigal living, meaning in this lavishness, in this exuberance. But that's actually not about what the story is about. The story is not about a prodigal son. Do you know what the story is about? It's about a prodigal father. Because when the son returns home, do you know how the father responds? Prodig prodigally. That's not a word. But he becomes a prodigal. Not because he's sinning, but because he's 
overwhelming. He's exuberant. He's lavish in his mercy and kindness and love. And the story is actually all about a prodigal father in his overwhelming love that steps in and saves the son and restores him. Isn't that an incredible ending? And Jesus, I mean, this whole thing would have just turned this whole world up. His whole, everyone listening would have been turned upside down. But what was the context? Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders. Could you imagine if they were listening to this story? They would have heard this story probably, they probably have told their own kids the same story. But when Jesus changed the ending, they would have been like, uh-uh, no, 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 that's not my God. No, no, you, you are messing with something. Why? Because we are right and good, and, and the whole point of this story uh, in the original was you need to be like the older son, obedient, good, kind. Hey, you stay at home, you just do what you're told, you honor the father. So Jesus adds another ending, which is the plot twist number two, which is the older son. And for the sake of time, I'll just summarize it, but it says that the older son came in from the fields. And he heard all this celebration and all this dancing. And he goes to a servant and says, what's going on? And he says, oh, your brother returned. Your dad had this big celebration, killed the fatted calf. Woo, come party. And the indication in the passage is the servant presumed the older, older brother would have been excited about this. Which we, <laughs> obviously he's not. Here's what's interesting. All growing up, I presumed the older son was the model son. He did what was right stayed at home, was proper. But do you realize that the older son had the exact same problem that the younger son did? He didn't want relationship with his father. And you see that countless times in the passage. The fact that the son is actually working in a far distant field, which, in other words, the son comes home, there would have been a party happening. If it was like, imagine on our, on our campus, if this was where the party was happening and you were over near the dorms, you would hear it. Right? And Brent was dancing. Right? And Philip was twirling with his daughters. You, you would hear the exuberance on the other side of, our, of the campus. Which means the sun in this distant field had to be quite a distance away. And here he is at the end of the day coming back. He doesn't go to the father. He goes to his servant. And says, what's going on? Well, your older son's returned. Then this older brother, this, this older son refuses to enter into the party and waits outside. And the father comes to him, which, again, in this culture is a shame thing. Fathers do not come to the beckoning of their sons. Sons come to fathers. The father should have said, you come in here, I'll talk to you. But instead, what does the father do again? He shames himself and goes out to the older son. And when you look at the whole relationship of the older son with, with the father. It's the same relationship that the younger son had. There is no relationship. In fact, the indication is the older son is just waiting for the father to die so he can get his inheritance. So there is no difference except the younger one was more bold and asked for the inheritance. The older son has major issues. There's no relationship. He needs salvation. And God used a famine in the younger son to draw him to the father, and yet the older son had nothing. So the father comes out, and he, he says, okay, you know, hey, your, your, your brother's come, and we've killed this fattened calf, and hey, there's this big party. And he looks in verse 29, 
He says, for many years I have served you and have never neglected a command, and yet you have never given me even a young goat, so I might celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours, isn't this interesting? This son of yours, again, there's a whole distance in the relationship. This is not, and my brother returned as, as family came home. And this is a family culture. So again, this is indicating, indicating that he has no relationship. Hey, when this son of yours came who devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf. And he doesn't care about all that because he wants his money. Are you getting that tone? And if you read through it a few times, it's just interesting how that is so strong. Do you know who Jesus is talking about with the older son? He's talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders. Again, the whole context is they're grumbling about why does Jesus hang out with the sinners and the tax collectors? We are the ones that have it right, says the, says the Pharisees. And Jesus says, oh, let me tell you about the nature of God. He's like this shepherd who goes after the one lost sheep. He's like this woman who's willing to search the house for one lost coin. He's like the father who's willing to overlook the fact that the son shook his fist in his face and was willing to forgive that. But there's this older son that thought he had it all together and did all the right things and did all the commands and was, hey, did it down to the point in the checklist and did everything that he thought the father wanted him to do, but he had no relationship with the father. And he's talking about them. And almost as a fun, odd twist to the story, he ends... Jesus ends the parable and does not give a conclusion. Look at this. Verse 31 and 32. uh, The the father looked at the son and said, Son, you you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for the brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, and and, and was lost and has been found. Period. In other words, how does the older son respond? And Jesus gives no indication. I was reading a book a month or so ago, and they were talking about the prodigal son story, and they gave this indication, and it just blew my mind. I was like, that is so brilliant. Again, for some reason, I I never saw the older son thing. I always thought that was what we were to model. We're in the church. We should be like the older son. No, both sons need relationship with the father. Both sons actually have lived their own way, and they need to return to the love of the father. And yeah, the younger son shook his fist in the face of the father, ran off, lived how he wanted to live, which is exactly what we have done. But there came a point when he was drawn back to the love of the father and was restored. But the older son, he did all the right things. He did what was, he thought was approved, was approved by the father, but he had no relationship with the father. How does the story end? How does the older son Respond to the Father. And though Jesus doesn't give the ending of the story, we can actually know the ending of the story by looking at how the Pharisees responded. You know what the Pharisees did? As the perfect older brother, they took the king of the universe and put him on a cross. So to put that into our story, here's the older son looking at the Father and the father says, son, oh, my son has returned. And we are celebrating. And the heart of the father is, would you come back too? And what does the older son do? The older son takes out a knife, 
kills the father. Because he is more wrapped up in his inheritance and more wrapped up in what he gets than he is in getting wrapped up in the father. Do you realize that we are one of those two characters in the story? We either realize that we are a prodigal who is living our own life and have been separated from the Father and desperately needs the love of the Father. Or we're the prodigal that has actually returned and embraced the Father and been fully restored. Or we're in that position of the older brother who thinks we're doing all the right things and we're doing all the religious activities and we're checking it off a list, but we actually still have no relationship with the Father. In fact, we're more interested in what we get from the Father than we are about the Father. Do you realize there's so many people in the church who have that mentality? That, yeah, I go to church and I'm glad, I'm glad my sins are forgiven because I, I get these things rather than getting wrapped up in the person of Christ. And Christianity is not about what we get from God. It's all about God himself. The fact that he gives you love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, the fact that you get to go to heaven, those are merely just bonuses from the fact that you get to have relationship with him. Would you press into Jesus? Would you see your need like the younger son and recognize that whatever famine is going on in your life may be actually a great blessing of the Lord and he's drawing you to himself? And would you not allow your heart to be hardened like an older son that says, I'm doing all the right things, but I want my own way. And I'd actually rather, God, get the things from you, but I actually don't want any relationship with you. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, I'm overwhelmed by your heart. Uh, the fact that you, like a shepherd, wants to go after a lost sheep, even if it's just one. That, that you're like this woman who loses the coin, and you are so desperate to find that lost coin. Lord, you are like a father who is willing to not only be shamed, but then you're willing to shame yourself for the rescue and the salvation of the son. That your heart is overflowing with mercy and kindness and compassion and love for your kids. Lord, could you allow us to see our need of you? Jesus, could you, could you cause us to be overwhelmed by the reality of our sin and that we would see that our desperate need for the Father? And Lord, you're not looking for a hired hand. You're looking for sons and daughters that you want to bring restoration and forgiveness and salvation to. Lord, don't let us take that for granted. Because we all have sinned and fallen short of your glory. We have all have shaken our fist in your face in rebellion and, and sin and, and just saying, hey, I want it my way. And yet you, while we were yet sinners, you died for us. Lord, do not let us take this for granted. Lord, I pray that if there's sin in our life that we would humbly come before you and that we would, we would find ourselves at the foot of the cross and that we would throw ourselves upon you and that we would seek your face Lord, may we live in the celebration and the joy. May that joy be our strength as we realize that you have brought a great salvation to our lives. And that while our sin, the justice of that demands death, you sought relationship. And Lord, don't let us become like this older brother 
Lord, don't let us become so arrogant in thinking that because we haven't, quote-unquote, gone astray as badly as our, as our brother, because we've done all the religious duties and because we've, all, we've done the actions, that somehow that gives us relationship. Because the older son needs you just as much as the younger son does. So, Lord, would you forgive us of our arrogance? Lord, would you bathe us in humility? Would you allow us to realize this is not about us and our religious duties and our religious whatevers. This is about relationship with the Father. So, Lord, would you soften our hearts and would you allow us to press into you and would you let us be overwhelmed by the love of who you are and the Father that was willing to embrace and kiss and clothe and put their sandals on and their ring and kill the fattened calf and celebrate because what was lost has now been found. What was dead has become made alive. And Lord, would you not only do this in our life, but would you give encouragement to our souls for the people around us who, who we see living as a younger brother or as an older brother but desperately need the Father? Would you remind us that there is nothing so hopeless even some kid working on a pig farm in the middle of a famine is not beyond your reach. And you will use whatever means necessary to draw them unto you. But Lord, start with us. Lord, we thank you that you are a good father, that you are a good, good shepherd. We just love you and we praise you and just give you the praise and the glory in your precious name. Amen.